What up, everybody? And welcome back to Love and Grit. I'm Laia. I'm Justin, and we're going to listen back to some of our favorite interviews. And these are two of my absolute favorites. Today, we're doing Quest Love and Roberto Lugo, who is an artist whose name you should know. And you will be happy you know it after this. And they have an interesting connection, Laia. Oh, yeah. I mean, Roberto Lugo is the man behind the beautiful Black Star mural in Philadelphia. That was an amazing story. Talking about being in the Met was amazing. And then, of course, Questlove, who has been partnered with Black Thought for the last years or so, as we celebrate 50 years of hip hop. I think, actually, the Roots are celebrating 30 years of being together. So, so much synergy in this episode. And both men were so honest with us. Yeah. They really dug deep and didn't hold anything back. And that's why I love Love and Grit, because people do let their Philadelphia out. And I think we really do get this. Roberto's been featured on CBS This Morning and his work mm-hmm. is, you know, in, in the Met already. And, he's still- and yet he stays in the community at the same time. You'll hear in this conversation that he is still all about the community as well. And that's what Philly is about. And Quest talks about the same thing, about coming back yeah. to his grandmother's porch. No matter what, this love and grit theme is people come back because it's like that authenticity of Philadelphia, which helps fuel them. Exactly. So get ready for some really amazing Philadelphia stories. These two, they're two of the great. Hey! So I will start this intro with the words, you're welcome. If you didn't know, Philly is the home of some of the greatest visual artists in the world. Roberto Lugo is one of those greats. Kensington-born, most know Roberto by his other name, the Ghetto Potter, due to the beautiful magic he creates with ceramics. I'm talking about reinventing the idea of fine china. Trust that seeing his work is life-changing. But if you think his work is limited to pottery, wait until you see the mural he is designing in honor of Philly living legend, Black Thought. Cue exploding head emoji, please. Where does your spirit come from? Like, what's your origin story? You know, I come from a very humble beginning. You mentioned I'm from Kensington, but, you know, there's there's different levels of poverty in Philadelphia. People don't understand. Like, there's people out there who don't got bathrooms. They got buckets. And for mm. a little bit of my time, it was that working at a factory when I was 13. But one of the things that I, I saw very early on was regardless of what our financial situation was, my mom was always given. She was making Puerto Rican dishes to do fundraisers during the holidays to send money because our church, there was part of the Dominican Republic. So we knew that money would go a really long way. And so a big part of my practice is kind of this duality between figuring out how to include myself in a place where I think historically people like me have not belonged, but then also bringing other people along with that. So like with my work, I don't want it to just be for the wealthy, even though a lot of my work is higher end. I make a lot of cups every month. Like I make several hundred cups and I'm constantly giving them out into the community. And then I also sell those things, but everybody has the same cup. And for me, that's really important because of the fact that I'm trying to get my work into a lot of different people's hands. And it plays a different function depending on that person's experience. Before I started making Believe It or Not, I knew a lot of people who didn't even know who Harriet Tubman was. And I'm like, how could you not know? How could you live in the United States of America and not see this image and immediately those words come out? Like for me, 
her image is inside my brain is George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. You right, know, like yeah. that's where I grew up. And so that tells me that there's a lot of people out there who are so ignorant and that's where they're starting off. Ignorant not being as like a, a way that they're doing on purpose, but just like how they were taught. And so making these objects that sit in somebody's house that remind them of all the people that came before them to give them the, the freedoms and the things that they have today is really important. And then when you have white people, that's a different relationship they have with that cup, right? Mm -hmm. A different reverence. And then black Mm -hmm. people, Puerto Rican people. All the time I hear when people holding these things and using these things, why it inspires them or why they connect with it is so different. One of the reasons why I love being a potter is because I can produce a lot of things at a time and I can get my work out in volume to the community. It's a strange thing to say, but whenever I give a gift, it feels like a gift to me. Because how do you do that? I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm curious. Why is it that it's easier to do more volume with what you do? Because it would seem hard that you make such one of a kind pieces. Yeah, well, it really depends on what I'm doing. Like my cups, for example, I can probably throw around 30 cups an hour. It only takes me about a minute to two minutes to throw a cup, depending on the decoration on it. That's why it takes me longer. Like I could spend six months painting a vase, right. you know, and a cup I can throw really quick. And then that's still something that I made with my hands that I can give out to my community. So when you're making a cup, is it simply your hands are there doing like the talking and they know exactly, I don't want to say robotic, but you've been doing it for yeah. so long. It's like muscle memory, but it's also... I'm really inspired because finally I have the autonomy to like choose what it is that I'm creating. And then the things I'm making have my name on it. I'm not laboring for somebody else. I'm laboring for myself. But I still understand the value of that work. You taking care of those hands, though, because I know you got muscle memory, but these are some muscles that, you know, with age. One of the things that I do right now is I have a lot of people that help me. So like one of the parts of clay that's really cumbersome is wedging clay, which is like kneading it. And I got somebody else doing that. So like by the time I get to studio, I got 50 balls of clay wedge for me. I just sit down and do my own thing. I put on my music. You know what what you listening to, Roberto? What you listening to? Oh, yes. So it's more therapeutic. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big therapy. Like I really like 90s hip hop. I don't know if y'all know this, but I'm working on a project right now with Erica Badu, a pottery line that we're going to make some incense holders. That's huge. You know what, though, Rachel, the truth is, is Erica Badu is just a person. I mean, she's a sensational, incredible person. But the reason why she would work with somebody is like me, because I don't really have a hierarchy of being. You know what I mean? I treat my students. I treat Erica Badu in the same way. And people sense that when you're real, Mm -hmm. you know? I was that, worried when you did the Seth Rogen piece. I was like, does that mean the prices go up? <laughs> it's you something that he bought a piece because he's a potter. Yeah. So actually, I made a, a lot less money working with Seth Rogen than I would making it on my own because those pieces, like, let's say a cup. But one of my cups, for those people who don't know, is like a cup is like three hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. So we sold a cup for three hundred dollars and I only get one fifty out of that versus if I sell it directly. So really, that relationship was more from the culture of pottery and making sure that people know, look, 
You don't got to just sell to other people who make pottery. You can go out into the communities and create your own audience. I've sold work at this point for over $100,000, but so much of my money goes right back into the community. Like right now, I employ 14 people. They all got full-time jobs. I got a cereal bar, espresso machine, uh, lunch breaks. We, we watch The Simpsons and we make waffles. So a lot of good stuff happening. I mean, if you were in a factory working at 13, right? Yeah. Where did art come into your life? And potting. Is it potting well, so or pottery? Either one of those works, Justin. As long as you call it, that's all I care about. <laughs> but I was like, you know what? I could afford $200 for three months of school, take a class, and I could meet people my age. That's really what I was thinking about. I just wanted to meet people. So I took an art class, believe it or not, Justin, because I didn't want anybody to know how poor my writing was. That was the first time people were like, that's good. Like, look what you're doing. And it got me all souped up. It got me to the point where, look, I could put all the blood, sweat, and tears that I put into all these other jobs, and I could put it into myself. That's a beautiful thing you just said. Yeah, that's how it happened, Justin. Really just wanted more out of my life. And honestly, I feel like it was a, a really happy accident. I got to tell you, for everybody who's listening, after you listen to this, you should go and watch the story on CBS because the moment they show you in the middle of Kensington sitting down, working on pottery, and the brother comes up and he is genuinely interested and you talk about how you feel good because they're interested because they're not even expecting somebody to be sitting in the middle of the hood doing pottery. Right. I just, oh, it's so true. And then especially coming out of Philadelphia, but it touches the world. It's just so exciting and for people, and it's especially young people to know that it's okay if you're thriving in a different skill set or area that's not cookie cutter. And telling your story. I mean, that's what's so important. Again, it's the exposure. You didn't know you could do it, but now seeing you being able to do it, I think will inspire other people. It is already. Now you got to tell us a story about how you became the muralist for the Black Thought piece. At first, I was thinking, man, whoever's doing this mural is so lucky. But now I'm thinking, damn, Black Thought is really lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's one of those things that happen. I think when you put out goodwill into the world, you know, that's one of the things I tell people all the time, especially my students. I say, like, don't ever position yourself and, like, try to do things with famous people or this or that. I was like, just treat the people right around you, your community. Treat them with love because those people are always going to want to see you flourish. Um, I donated my time to work with mural arts and just teach kids how to make things with clay. And I was teaching some workshops. And eventually I started to get some of my own acclaim. And they said, you know, hey, we'd like to work on a mural with you. And I said, well, I do these portraits. And, you know, I've always had a dream of doing one of Black Thought. And they said, well, he used to be um, a student at mural arts. And he comes to a lot of our functions. And then Jane Golden got on the phone with him. And, you know, it's all history. So I I'm really grateful for this mural and it's supposed to go up next year and he's going to come out. And part of the mural has Sonia Sanchez on it. Yes. Mira Baraka. (gasps) Yeah. It's amazing. But I feel like one of the things I really want to do is I want to be a conduit to like keep these relationships going between the community that I grew up in and then creative outlets like pottery, like visual art, like music. One of the things that arts does is it helps us communicate things we can't say with words. And a lot of times people that are short on words, they don't have another way to talk. So if you give them this, then they're finally free to say the things that they have deep inside of them, which I think is really important. 
besides the mural, what's next for you? I mean, you're getting all this exposure and you're at a point in your life where like you have a good thing going. Are you reaching for more or what are you thinking about? Well, I'll tell you, I'm on an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is <laughs> So there's that. And then next year I'm doing an art exhibition at the Grounds for Sculpture in New Jersey. And then the other thing I'm doing is I'm starting a brand called Village Potter. And it's a home goods, clothing. Like I'm making bags, sneakers. Really all the things that I'm trying to do is to come back to where I'm from and remind people the culture that they create is valuable. It holds up to anything else in the world and that they're completely capable of doing the things that I'm doing, but also reminding them that they're the reason why I get to do what it is that I do. That's beautiful. I write poetry too, so I kind of just want to share a piece because a lot of our music comes from not having music classes. I think our graffiti comes from not having art classes. But I think we're still artists. We sort of make work regardless in that resistance. So, so when you cut the arts, baby, you cut the heart strings off the body that freedom rings. If you cut the arts to fund war, what are we fighting for? They tell us to paint houses, but not to paint no canvas. You'd rather see me in encampments than exceeding on a campus. Without art, how you gonna dance when you ace that math test? And who's gonna sing your praises when you get that high mark? Without art, we're quick to draw guns, man. We have to sing war cries, dance around the issues. You wanna stop violence? Pick us some violins. You see, those who draw good, we the last to draw blood. And those who throw pots, we're the last to throw shots. So so when you cut the arts, baby, you cut the heart strings off the body that freedom brings. Hi, I'm Samantha Smith. And check me out on the Love and Grit podcast because I am Philly. There are too many guests that we can agree on who deserve their own solo episode. However, I think Justin, Rachel, myself, and the whole city of Philadelphia agree that Questlove is that one. As your official Philly podcast, there are a few Philly things you should know about Questlove. Number one, Amir Khalib Thompson, a.k.a. Quest, was born into Philly music royalty and that his father is legendary doo-wop singer Lee Andrews, who later formed a singing group with Quest's mom, Jackie, as I like to call Miss Jackie. Number two, Quest attended Kappa, of course, the creative and performing arts high school where he would meet his partner, Black Thought, battle boy Samin, befriend Kristen McBride years before Jasmine Sullivan and Leslie Odom Jr. would follow in his school footsteps. And number three, Quest is the spark that started Philly Philly's most recent world-renowned musical movement, and that he is the common thread to breaking stars like Jill Scott, Eve, Jaguar Wright, Beanie Siegel, Flower Tree, Kendrick the Family Soul, Jasmine Sullivan, Ursula Rucker, not to mention the Philly musicians who are now superstars in their own right thanks to Quest Touch. But that was then. The real reason he needs his own episode? So we could talk about writing five books, changing the face of the Oscars, winning Sundance your first time directing, partnering with all kinds of food vessels, band leading The Tonight Show, The Roots, and that other podcast where he's my co-host with his name on it. Welcome to the show, Questlove. I think that's all the time we have today. So thank you very much. <laughs> and I, I appreciate it. I wasn't uncomfortable hearing that. Thank you. I know Thanks for joining us. That I was I was very uncomfortable hearing that. You should also know Questlove doesn't like compliments. I'm learning. That's the real pivot of 2020, taking compliments. Or 2021. Mm, it happened fast. Yeah. I know. It's yeah, all blood is, together. I feel like this entire decade will just be known as 2020. And there's a lot of pivots when you think about 2020. Can you tell us how you've maneuvered that? I think about 
everything that has to come your way. I think about how strategic you are, the vision that you have, the goals, but how were you able to really master the art of the pivot throughout this pandemic? Kicking and screaming, kicking and screaming. (laughs) Okay, so I've been so blatantly transparent with my transformation in the last year in the press. Like I always wonder, because, you know, I'm sure that the great Deanna Williams is a friend of the show. Yeah. Um, And knowing what she is as a media coach for a lot of stars, like she's been everyone's media coach, teasing them how to do interviews, how to be clear and all those things. You know, and I kind of pat myself on the back. Like, I didn't need Deanna Williams to teach me how to do interviews. I've been doing fine on myself. So, you know, I've been good for like 25 years. And then once you <laughs> once you enter the Disney sphere, because Disney and Searchlight is the production company that purchased our movie. And after the first interview, they like had a powwow with my entire management team. Like, no, this is, we, we got to get him a media coach and teach him out because he's revealing way too much. And da 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 Awkward. Right, so. <laughs> well, it's, it's Disney. They like you to keep it like basic general. So yeah. it's just like, yes, I love directing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the true story is March 13th, March 14th, when the whole entire world stopped, I was panicking my ass off because the thing is, is that it's like once you jump in the pool that I'm swimming in, you always have to keep your head above water. Like a lot of rappers that you see because you have to keep up with the Joneses and show out when you go out and whatever, you know, a lot of them have to struggle to keep their head above water. It's like they spend more than they make. Mm. And so... I'll say that in my case, the particular dollar amount that I needed to keep 23 people employed, not knowing that I wasn't going to be standing on stage for the next year and a half. Like we just started booking some gigs for August right now. So I, I haven't set foot on stage and, you know, I've done a few like DJ gigs, but mostly I've been raising money. So I went through so many phases like, yo, I'm going to get some gold fronts. Yo, everyone's wearing platinum. <laughs> Yeah, wouldn't it be cool if I got a a spinning Afro pick? Yeah, it's like 200,000, right? I could do that. Thank God I didn't go through that. So right now. Thank God the Scion was your first car, not the Benz. Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) pretty much uh, I've been wisely surviving off of the low 40% that I hold on the side, you know, the safe or rainy day. Yeah. That's what's been holding me down. But really, it's, it's just, I think by week number seven, combined between my manager, Sean G, and my girlfriend, Grace, just literally smacking me like, get it together. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Oh, like, shout out to Grace. Yeah, man. Yeah. I can't. Yes. I'm not. Even now, she'll say like, no, you did the work. You decided to do the but work. But that you motivation to- and standing by you and that inspiration and being a cheerleader and like, come on. Because the, the amount of hours it takes. Think about real talk, like the amount of stress or anxiety and you having to or needing to talk to your partner about that and figuring mm-hmm. it out. That's a lot. Yeah, she and being on top of each other. Yeah. And we're together. Yo, dude, this is like we're living in even as we speak right now, still Mercury in retrograde. Yes. And the amount of divorces and breakups of these like infallible like you guys do. You guys, too. Yeah. We say to each other every day, like, yo, are you shocked we're still together? Because, like, everyone's breaking up except for us. <laughs> right? It's like, thank goodness you chose the right partner. That's scary. But they're but on also, a constant journey of improvement, too. Like, you got to talk, you know, in the meditation and just everything that y'all doing to just constantly stay improving. How do you do the improvement stuff? All right. Well, number one, we got to make sure that we're clear. And trust me, we've had 
moments where it's like we need to have a summit meeting like what do you want you just got to be rigorously honest because a lot of times we'll manage each other's feelings like you don't want to hurt this person's feelings or you still feel so frustrated you know this is going to cause an argument and i'm the king of that like i've let roots issues go for like decades before I had my first conversation about, well, you know, in 1995, you didn't even know I was in the other room when I heard y'all talking about me and the tape was running and I get home and I'm like, the talking? Like, yeah, this is really important to be rigorously honest about something. It's still hard for me. Like even yesterday, you said something like, I feel some sort of way about that. And I was like going to let it go. Then I was like, right. And so she at least invites that energy. So I'll say that's really rare to have. I think Mm -hmm. with anyone else, my, my expiration date is always eight months. And then it's like, but that's like the way the universe works, right? Like it keeps taking us on these routes that we don't expect. And that's sort of where I want to go back to. Mm -hmm. How do we go from Kappa from you having an empire and you just being so down to earth and being able to talk about evolving with your girlfriend? So the thing is, is that I noticed that every zero age is where the paradigm shift starts. So when I was 10, this is when I started drumming for my father, which didn't seem like a big deal because it's just like, oh, my dad's drummer got in a motorcycle accident. I got to feel in. I was thinking about the 10 speed I was going to buy. Like, wait, I'm going to get $200 for this. So I was like the richest 10 year old I knew. When I was 20, the 20 pivot was hard because my dad had expectations of me studying at a conservatory like Curtis Institute or Juilliard. He wanted me to do like classical music because in his mind, it's like you being a classical percussionist at the Royal Philharmonic. That's distinguishable. You know, parents often unknowingly transfer their own fear onto you. So I'm certain that my dad's kind of thwarted attempt to really have a a career that was satisfying to him. He just put his fears on me like, you know, after three years, then it fell apart and you should do something to fall back on and be safe. And that's the worst advice you can ever give to a kid, like fall back on something, because it's almost like if you have a plan B, you don't believe in your plan A. So, you know, I went through the motions of auditioning for Juilliard, but I, I knew it wasn't going to go. And I got a record deal. Luckily, we got a record deal after like busking on the streets of Philadelphia and all that stuff. And then when I turned 30, that was a weird pivot because suddenly like Common and D'Angelo and like all these other acts wanted me to work with them. And it's like, damn, well, we do like 250 shows. No, I don't got time to do that. And it's like, hey, I want to do other things. And luckily at the time, like Tariq was doing a movie. So him doing his movie at the time, he gave me time to take time off to get with D'Angelo and work on all those projects that are Soul Aquarium related. But that was a, that was a hard pivot because then it'd be like, damn, man, why'd you give Common that song? Like, why can we have that song? You know, th- there was a lot of that happening. Like, Why you got to go on tour with D'Angelo now? Right. You know, I'm the reason they're not touring and all that <laughs> stuff. And yeah, so that was hard. And then when I turned 40, the pivot was Fallon. We just got the touchdown. And now are we to turn our back on what we worked on so hard? And that was a weird pivot, like to go to this unknown, uncharted territory. And now at 50, what was once just I came into this thing as like, okay, well, I'm going to tell this music story and this one time music story. And I didn't know that the entire industry was sort of watching me to see how I do. And the second that we sent this movie out, to the festival circuit and whatnot, I didn't realize that like every production company was sort of like, let me see that Questlove movie, see what he, oh, not bad. Hey, let's offer him da-da-da. So yeah, I'm working on my follow-up film right now, but really there's six of them. There's six what? 
I have a canon up, you know, and I'm speaking in future tense, but yeah. basically I've agreed to direct six main, and these aren't like just six projects. These are like my manifested, the world's your oyster. Who do you want to do a documentary on? So wait, wait, wait. Do you now have like a whole production company? Like, tell us what a quest love John, like what is. is that- <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can talk about the slide film. So towards the end of doing Summer of Soul, Common called me up because he has Freedom Road, his production company, and he had acquired the rights to Sly Stone's life back in 2012. But they just never had the right director to tell Sly Stone's story. And so when they started seeing clips of our progress, they were like, all right, it's Amir's turn. And then when that happened, other luminaries, other people, they uh, (laughs) called me up. (laughs) Oh, did it? Oh, did he really? You didn't tell me that. I didn't say none of that. Because it's a about- loving, great conversation, Laya. That's right. You're hearing it yeah. here. <laughs> I don't know oh. what just happened in the last minute. Blink and you missed it. <laughs> but yeah, so I am now going to direct a lot more films that, that we've so agreed exciting. to. How do you do all this stuff? How is there enough time in a day? You're a James. So the, fir- the first thing you nominated cookbook author. Wait, 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 wait. Can I interrupt? Can I go yeah. on a bunny trail for a second? You have many cookbooks, but I have to talk about my favorite cookbook, the mixtape potluck, where you talk about your dinner salons. I love that book. Thank like you. absolutely love yeah. it. Like I, it, it's so creative. Even if you're not looking for a recipe, how you break down, hey, if you're looking for snacks or if you're the dinner guest that doesn't cook and bring that good ice, that premium ice. Like <laughs> <laughs> You told so much of your own personal stories and it showed how much if a person doesn't know you directly, but you're about family and community. And mm-hmm. it was really special. It was very, very nice. Well, the, the reason why I did that is because food was the secret adhesive to the roots. I'll say our second chapter, you know, Mm -hmm. the first being that once we got the record deal and then realized that this journey was going to be a little hard to kind of go on after our third attempt at trying this with our third album, Illadelph Half-Life, you know, we kind of had a panic moment. It's like, okay, well, we tried this three times already and it didn't quite work. So we really got to make sure this fourth album works our manager, the late Richard Nichols, Mm. he came with a plan. And even the record label was like, wait a minute, why is there a chef here? And he's like, you don't understand. Like, we can't do what we're doing unless you use food to entice people to come by the house. So essentially, there's a landmark restaurant in Philadelphia called Zanzibar Blue. Yes. I used to be a hostess there. I get it. (laughs) So you, you should know Terry. Terry, who's like one of the head chefs at Zanzibar Blue, would come to our house, my house, on Friday nights to cook. And it just so happens that everyone at this jam session at the time, you know, Jill Scott was working at some denim spot on South Street or whatever. Fatine and Asia, like Fatine and I went to high school together at Kappa. He was doing merch for The Roots. His friend, he told me about, you know, this girl in Atlanta that plays acoustic guitar and she wants to come up a few times and hmm. sing. And, and DRE came out of the house to visit an unknown Mostef and Quali would be these sessions. The most ridiculous of it all, like when when it really got out of hand and I insisted that we do this at a spot that is not my living room because, <laughs> you know, Saturday mornings, no one's cleaning up the beer bottles and, and ashes <laughs> and beaties. Y'all remember beaties? Oh, do or I? Did I just he- date myself? No, no we no. remember. <laughs> I remember the headaches. Yeah. Yeah. Like beaties. <laughs> ah, they're the worst. <laughs> 
at some point, Kilo, one of our producers in, in the Grand Wizards, was trying to tell us, I know this this girl, she's only 11 years old, but she kind of has a voice of, a, of of an adult. And I was like, no, no kids in the house. And, da, da, da. and you know, it's like, you can't deny Jasmine Sullivan sounds like a, a full grown adult as a 12 year old. And every Tuesday she'd show up to when we finally moved it to the five spot, she'd sleep in her dad's car in the back and then come and sing her songs and then go to school the next day. So in 97, food was essential to enticing the artist community to those jam sessions. And I kind of kept that idea, but did the opposite. So it wasn't music centric. I wanted to see if food creatives and, and chefs could also tell a story. I just happened to have access to some of the best James Beard, Michelin star chefs. Mm-hmm. But how, Amir, because you talk about food, but you're in the best of the best. Where did you meet these James Beard chefs? Like, how did that happen? Um, so Rich and I were too thinking, like there's none more annoying than when a person kind of, metaphorically speaking, cuts the line in, at the bank on a Friday, you know, that person. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I didn't want to be the person that just like pays to get into uh, a fraternity without paying their dues and whatnot. And the food world is very, very like guarded that way. So we had a very, very specific plan. I was not initially with this plan because I thought it was silly. Now, unbeknownst to me, my manager, Rich, was kind of handed a death sentence around 2010. He was told he had leukemia, but Rich is so cynical. We just thought like, man, you're always complaining about your arm being in pain. But suddenly, like just these random things were happening. We got to use food to get you into circles. And I was like, huh? Food? Like, no, let's make this next record. No, food. No, let's make this next record. So I didn't understand what he was doing, but his mm-hmm. master plan was He's like, what we're going to do is we're going to use the drumstick to get you. And I was like, this is the silliest I ever heard. So step one was I came to Philly and we had a tasting. People were under the impression that I was looking for a personal chef. So suddenly every food creative is lining around the block and I'm having a taste off and all this stuff. We chose the person who made the best chicken drumsticks. And we then started entering food festivals. So there's a, a thing that Philly does every year called Feast Adelphia. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of came in as underestimated, like the drummer from the roots has some fried chicken. Huh, that's <laughs> going to be weird. And Feast Adelphia is a thing where Steven Starr, he wins like 13 years in a row. He owns damn near every restaurant. <laughs> so me coming to Feast Adelphia with my little David and Goliath setup. And being underestimated, and yeah, let's try the fried chicken from the drummer from the roots. That should be funny. And Ed Rendell gets there and loses his mind and makes his assistant come back to steal like seven more pieces for the road. <laughs> so this hits the blogosphere. Questlove steals Feast Adelphia away from Steven Starr. And Ed Rendell walked away with seven pieces. And, <laughs> and then suddenly the blogosphere started uh, turning. Attention. Yeah. Right. And then we started throwing parties where I have people cook and I would DJ and people come to the house. David Chang was one of the first people to show up like, all right, I heard about this and eater. Oh my God, it's the truth. And then next thing you know, it just became like, like Dominique Ansel, who was inventing the cronut. My dear friend, Anthony Bourdain, suddenly the entire first round of food fraternity welcomes me with open arms. And then I just try to figure out like, okay, how could I now nuance this into an idea? So I was just like, well, let's do the reverse thing with the roots. Instead of having food attract musicians to jam, let's 
just hire a piano player and do the same thing and have a jam session with chefs. So mm. it would be April from Spotted Pig. It would be Dominique Gansell. It could be Daniel from 11 Madison. All these people, they were the new rock stars of 2011. So mm-hmm. I got in on the train early. I knew that chefs were the new rock stars. And nuancing those relationships after three years, then it was like, okay, well, you might as well write a book about these experiences. So that's the long-winded answer of how that book came to be. But now my third step is, you know, for me, Growing up in Philly, in a very iconic food town, I didn't always make the healthiest of choices. Talk about it. Yes. And so this starts with me kind of quasi clowning Magic Johnson about his, if you know, Magic Johnson has the empire of movie theaters, Mm -hmm. Magic Johnson Fridays and all those things. Mm -hmm. So when he came to The Tonight Show to announce the chain of Fridays, Philadelphia has a different relationship with Fridays because of <laughs> very a lot of I, right all yeah. these Iverson stories. So backstage, I go to Magic Johnson, and I was just like, "Wait, you're just here to promote Fridays?" <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah." I was like, "Oh, okay." And he's like, "Why?" And I was like, "Well," and I explained to him like, "Look, I come from Philadelphia, and <laughs> you don't know how many times that he's been late to games because he's on City Line <laughs> Avenue, like busting it up at Fridays, like yes. turning the club Friday." And he said, this is why Fridays is the most important thing that I've done. And he says, what you don't understand is that I had to put these Fridays, like he's trying to put these Starbucks and these Fridays and these Mm -hmm. Whole Foods and the movie theater in the hood because you can't get a garden salad or anything healthy. Food deserts. Exactly. He's like, where I'm placing these Fridays, this is their only option for salads. Wow. And one story that stuck with me. I had seen Shock G, the late Shock G at, at, of Digital Underground in an airport once, and he was pushing a gentleman in a wheelchair who seemed to be quadriplegic. And when I hit him later, he's like, oh, you didn't know that was Safir? Safir, I believe, was Ice Cube's cousin. He used to be on Quest Records. Safir was famous for battling souls of mischief. There's a world famous battle between the hieroglyphics and Safir, like in some Kill Bill crazy 88 scene one Safir battled the entire hieroglyphics and it became like one of the most legendary rap battles forever. But when I talked to Shock G the second time, I was like, wait a minute, he lost his limbs, right. his arms and his legs. Like what happened? And he explains the story about how he had such a severe case of diabetes, diabetes. and the doctor had asked him like, just out of curiosity, what's your vegetable intake? Because his sugar level was super high. And I think that he just basically admitted that he's been living off of AMP and mini market or a plus microwave food. Mm. It was like, did the onions count in the cheeseburger or that mm. sort of thing? Like he told me the story about like any, any vegetable intakes. He's like, well, the pickles on the burger that I microwave oh. and all that stuff. But he, he had a whole diet 15 years straight of just like those bad cheeseburgers, those bad burritos, Skittles, candy, soda. And I was like, yo, that was my existence. Like I hate it. Even now I hate salad so much. I have to drink about 15 of these a day. This right here. Okay, this is normal. This is like kale, cauliflower, mushroom, ginger, turmeric. Um, How often do you have to go to the bathroom? Oh, that part. Yeah. <laughs> well, how did you get there? Because I'm I feel comfortable with the mirror. Like, we're just talking. I'm I like, put it this way. I put it this way. I was at the top of the pandemic in February. I was 412 pounds. Okay. Talk about it. I'm 301 now. Wow. And I'm going for 220. So there's still another. The reason reason why I have to go super extreme now 
is because when people are kind of on the weight journey that I'm on, mm-hmm. you tend to start feeling yourself like the second yeah. you get yeah. in those jeans. Did you meet with a like dietitian that suggested that? Because I always wonder about what's the sodium intake. And in I hired one. Because okay. the thing is, basically, I'll be like, yeah, yeah, I'm doing fine. And the second I get out the door, yeah. straight to the, you know, yeah, yeah, start eating, telling on myself. So I was paired with probably the world's best dietitian. His name is nice. Dr. Mark Hyman. Tell yeah. us what you're doing. Yeah. All right. So wait a minute. Let me Hold up. Let me get, let me get my notes. <laughs> Everyone's right. Because the COVID 20 to 30 is real. <laughs> I'm surprised you did recognize me. It was probably the big grin, but go this- ahead. <laughs> <laughs> the dimple. Here's, here's the thing, though. I'm in phase three right now. Okay. So Rick Rubin challenged me because Gracie and I were quarantining on a farm. And Rick Rubin was kind of my accountability partner. So every morning I would have to show him that I did 10,000 to 15,000 steps. He says, all you have to do, because Rick Rubin looks great. He does. Yeah. All he does now is he takes 10,000 steps and he loves surfing. So that's that's his fun thing. He says, basically, if you just walk and take 10,000 steps a day, I guarantee you this. And yes, a lot of that stuff melted on me. But okay, here's the part where I'm going to tell you. That might blow your mind and get kind of weird because okay. I don't know how to explain this last 30. So, again, I got to a place and I started peaking at like 330. And right. I was just like, well, OK, I guess this is where I'm staying because, you know, your body's now like, OK, well, this is where we're going to stay. We're not yep. going to go any further. So my introduction to the word placebo syndrome actually came courtesy of George Clinton. One of the parliament records with flashlight on it was called the placebo syndrome. And so I was always taught to mean that the placebo syndrome is when like people take fake pills and they think that they're getting high or they think that they're being affected, but really mm-hmm. like it's not happening. So I discovered something called somatic breathing exercises. I mean, you could say this is kind of tantric-ish. Right. We're thinking of Sting and Trudy Stein, right? <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, is that not right? 17 <laughs> hours of love. Yes. No, that, that's real. So here's the deal. I'm realizing that the true answer might be because the thing is, is that I dropped 30 pounds in the last four months, but I really haven't been taking my steps. However, what I've been doing is the, a rigorous amount of breathing. Believe it or not, I do eight to 12 hours of sleeping every day. I know you're like, that's impossible. That's a lot. <laughs> when? I'm here. And yeah. three hours of meditation. I wake up in the morning and do two hours of meditation. Oh, and then the nighttime at one. Okay. And I do one, one at night. I'm just learning now the reason why we exercise. Like I thought like if you pick up a weight and your muscle responds to that, like I can't do it. Right. I thought that's what activates the muscles. I thought that's what activates the fat burning of it all. Yeah. Oh, it's the oxygen. So like when you run 10 miles and you're out of breath, that's what makes you lose weight. Basically, if your body's a chalkboard, you need oxygen to clean you out. So when you do that, you're cleaning out your cells. The kind of embarrassing thing about it is that it's very deep breathing. You have to do the sound it's intense. It's like, it's going to be a bad gif already. I can tell. I, I literally Lion. was just Lion, that's the sound you make. That's the sounds you be making like. Sound close. Listen, what you're basically doing is you're tricking your mind into thinking 
that you're exercising. So the simplest way to start off is you do seven seconds inhaling through your nose. Hold it. You hold it for five seconds and you slowly let it out your mouth. That's what I do in the morning for two hours. What I just demonstrated to you, that that intense level breathing where it's, where it's like Lamaze classes, mm-hmm. you do that for 20 minutes to a half hour, you're hmm. going to get dizzy. When you get to 45 minute, an hour territory, something different happens. I I tend to cry and not know. Like, I'm not sad. Yeah. But for some reason, it's like, wait, why am I crying all of a sudden? But yes. when you get to 75 minutes, 75, that's kind of what, the sting Trudy Styler thing starts. Even when I'm alone in this house, like I'm still like embarrassed, like the walls are thin, the neighbors hear me, right? the cats are outside and you feel like, <laughs> oh God, someone's going to hear me do this for an hour, 15 minutes. <gasps> like I can't even do that for five seconds without feeling silly. Now imagine doing that for 75 minutes. Essentially what I'm doing is I'm tricking my body into thinking I'm exercising. Okay. And that's what's happening. I know it sounds, but I'm. It does not you. sound, no. It doesn't sound silly at all. At all. It's my version of all you got to do is click the hole three times and you're home. <laughs> I'm so ready. For, I'm ready. Or is it that I convinced myself it's a placebo. that that's the answer and it's working? Whatever the case is, I dropped 30 pounds in the last three months and Congratulations. Like, I, I, I didn't power walk. I changed my diet a little bit, but. You just broke the internet. Hmm. Something do you feel? What's the difference that you feel in the weight? I'm still in accidental tourist territory. And that's the thing that Grace gets on me about, because Grace says, if you're going to play this role, you got to convince your body. You got to convince yourself that this is happening. And the thing that irks Grace the most is that she says that my comfort zone is in. Am I? So pre pandemic, I was. Well, am I? Am Mm -hmm. I? My body doesn't believe that I'm as great as you say I am. No part of me believes it. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you have to graduate from am I question mark to I am. I am. Exclamation point. That is a hard thing to own. Like right now, when I do the, the two hour meditation thing, I got to go in the mirror and stand in front of that mirror and talk. I got to be nice to myself for 15 minutes, which Mm. is another hard thing. Is there ever a morning where you're like, you know what? Not going to do it today. There've been times where I slack off and then the worst happens to me. I don't know. I just convinced myself that no matter what, I will never, ever go off the grid again. Uh, How long have you been doing all of this? Why am I being this transparent? I've never been this transparent. (laughs) You ain't. It's called evolution. Come on. You've been loving grit. And that's it. There you go. Yes. Um, How long have I been doing it? Um, like, has it been like you've been building on things? Has it been therapy? Have people taught you? People are weird to talk about it, but so, you're talking about it and it's important. Mm-hmm. So step step one is December of 2017. That was like my darkest period. It, it's so weird. Like our relationship with death and just my uh, demise, especially in the hip hop nation. Mm. It's so numbing. It's almost like attractive, kind of in that heroic. I'm going to go out like Queen Latifah and set it off like that sort of thing. And for me, it was like I had a moment at the Roots picnic that I never shared with the world. I never shared with none of the Roots. I never shared with anybody. But we're on stage. We're, we're doing the, the Roots picnic in New York City. And there's a moment between one of my longtime comrades in which we're slowly discovering that we're about to be stood up yet again. 
So the thing is, is that I have a, a production manager who lives on panic. He's one of these people that like, I'm certain even now he's planning on waking up at four in the morning to ask me about some concert we're going to do in October. That's not even like, that's how Keith is as a human. He's like a, a, a robot. And so we're on stage and John Mayer's taking like a guitar solo and I'm prepping for our next guest. And then suddenly out of nowhere, McPhee just like, I'm here. No, 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 no. It's not going to show up. He's about to go home. And no, 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 no. Basically explaining to me that our headliner is not going to perform. Mm, mm, mm. And what you going to do now? The, just the level of panic. Like, I, I don't operate on panic and startle, even though I have a good poker face, which is not good because that's you internalizing your, your feelings. Five seconds went by and I felt it. I felt a heart palpitation. And it's one of them things where, you know, like when you get a Charlie horse, when your muscles start to tight, mm -hmm. I never felt that feeling in my heart before. And so I felt the squeeze and I was like, I'm about to have a heart attack on this stage. And this is how ego works. I said to myself, my Wikipedia page is going to be f up. It's going to say Thompson died <laughs> at his own festival. Amir. You thought about your Wikipedia page in that moment? That is how narcissistic we are. I was like, yo, man, everyone's phone's out. I'm going to fall. It's going to be a viral moment. I'm going to die at my own festival. So I think I told my brain, this is not happening. This is not happening. And I just begged. I said, whatever you do, I don't care who's listening to me. If you please just let me. You know, the thing like when when the drunk is throwing up and like, please, God, I'll stop. I'll stop. Like, I just had that moment. And I was like, yo, if you could just let me out of this one time, I promise I will change. I'll do whatever you want. But I cannot I cannot be an example of I can't live this down. Like Mel D. Cole will always make fun of the. <laughs> Wait, here's the thing, though. Amazing photographer, by the way. You yes, he, follow he's, him. he's a photographer. Yes, we mm -hmm. are friends. We're not enemies, but we just play one on television. Mm -hmm. He's behind me capturing this and he knows what's happening. So he's laughing at me like, aha, your your festival's ruined. Da, 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 da. So there's a moment where I see Dave Chappelle walk up and Dave Chappelle is not ready or prepared for none of this because he's just there to watch the festival. Have fun. Yeah, he was there to have fun. And I called Dave Chappelle over. And I said, Dave, I can't explain to you, but I need you so bad right now. Aww. If you could just do 10 minutes for me so I could figure out what's going on. And Mel catches that moment. And later I told Mel, dude, you don't even know. My entire left side was about to explode. I don't know what told me. Inhale, exhale. So I just started like, how do I make the spasm go down? So I just started. <sighs> and suddenly... Weird enough, 10 minutes later, the show went on. So I ducked that bullet. But <sighs> if you remember, like Tariq had a birthday party that night and all that mm -hmm, stuff. Mm -hmm. Nah, the first thing I told my friend who was with me was like, I need you to take me to the hospital that rich white people go to in New York City just so I can meet my doctor. I called my doctor there or whatever. And they were like, yeah, you had a close call. But Wow. That um, makes me so sad and mad. Oh, my God. Well, no, that that's... People have to have a wake up call. And that mm. was my wake up call. And he basically told me like, OK, you dodged a bullet this time, mm. but you are on your way out the door. Mm -mm. Oh, yeah. Stop that. 
Okay. I'm here. I had to be an example. I didn't I didn't mean to, to bring the festivities uh, down. This is around the time that I met Grace. And you know, I've known Grace for like 30 years. You know, we've worked together. She she was our video commissioner during the phrenology period. She was really the only one that just said, like, this is the worst I've ever seen you look, man. There's mm-hmm. no way that you're happy about this. So true to form, she just started like, okay, well, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna get you a life coach and we're gonna get you a nutritionist and we're gonna get you a trainer. And we got to get your life together and your health together. And that's important. And it's like no one ever gobsmacked me like that because like I'm everyone's boss. So a lot of times like I'll get angry because people are having conversations. You know, they're all like, thank God for grace, because, you know, we used to have meetings about you, Amir, and you're about to die and da 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 da. But they were scared to approach me and da da da. And we don't want to get fired because you don't listen to everybody either. Don't forget that part. Right. You can't tell me. nothing. I get it. I get it. It, It's weird because I went to sleep after grace and i went out and i was just like wow that's really great and then i was like wait a minute the f- she say to me like suddenly like the it was like one of those delayed and so, <laughs> it was that moment where i was like in bed and then i was like wait a minute she insulted me the f- <laughs> and it was too late i realized that either i'm going to get through this or become a statistic even then, I was just like, yeah, 50, you're probably going to die at 54. Like no one in my my field makes it past 53, 50. You know, everyone's having strokes and whatnot. And so that is what set me onto the path. So, you know, I got a life coach. She found out quick, fast what my vice was, food. So the first thing she did to me was she says, look, you know, I know you're in a desperate place right now, but not many people do the work once I challenge them. I'm giving you 30 days. I'm giving you one time to bull me and if i feel like you're bull me i drop you instantly and i'm keeping all the money that you give me so i did not <laughs> one to one to lose uh, uh, several house payments she would call me at 3 a.m facetime me okay go to your garbage let me see okay go to the hamper go to the bathroom she knew all my hiding spots and all those things the hamper mirror thing dude it was i didn't even realize that because i just thought like oh i'm a foodie and i enjoy food and i write books about food nah that was my go-to self-soothe move without even knowing it. And so the reason why she does this for 30 days is because people who go to therapy tend to bull. And the thing is, is like when you do regular therapy, you go on a Tuesday, you talk for 45 minutes, then you have the rest of the week and you go back to doing what you normally do. Mm-hmm. And with her, it's an everyday thing. And so I had to do that for about a, a year and a half. That was the top of 2018. But that's not easy. Like that's day in and day out of all this work on top of all the other work you're doing. Like it's a lot to maintain. Well, the first thing that she made me do was cut about 11 jobs in my life. So at that time there was Sesame Street. There was you were teaching at NYU. Store. Yeah, I was teaching at NYU. I was working on Amy Schumer's show. Like I was working on other television mm-hmm. shows and doing rigorous amounts of, of DJing, doing Brooklyn Bowl. And so I had to. She's like, I only want you to do the things that still light your fire. And I was like, well, you know, I'm keeping the roots. So that's without negotiation. And I'm keeping the tonight show. And then we sort of built with what do you want to do? So now I only do seven things. You cap it. I'm capping at seven, but here's the deal now. Now that the movie thing is real, I'm going to have to walk away from a few things. Not Quest Love Supreme. Oh, sorry. Did I just. (laughs) (laughs) 
She's so not worried about you. No, no, no. Let me just say this. Quest no, no, no. Supreme is safe. Yes. No, no, no. I love you first. You're my friend, so I want to make sure you're right. I'm just, I'm just messing with you. I got a couple other jobs to sustain this in case. No, I, I actually love doing, dude. This, this, we, we have the best job ever. Where we get to grill like our favorite people. I love that show. Based on what you told us about your, you know, meditation and breathing, and then mm. the different jobs. So do you just have like a team or an assistant that helps you just keep like a tight schedule? Like, how do you navigate that? That goes back to Justin's. Um, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm an extremely I'm 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 not I'm not allowed to talk negatively about myself. So I was formerly very irresponsible with time. Okay. I'm now responsible with time, even though, yes, I came to this taping 15 minutes late because I was late to my last thing 15 minutes late and I was late. You're forgiven. Um, Thank you. Yes. I, Ellie, my assistant, is literally my clock and my calendar. Mm -hmm. so okay. Just to give you a visual idea of what my mornings are like, I'm not allowed to touch the phone until, well, until after my meditation thing. So. And shout out to Ellie and thank you because we got to say right now you're in the middle of your press junket for Summer of Soul. So yes. just thank you for making Philly and Love and Grit a part of that. Absolutely. Like How yeah. many years have you been doing The Tonight Show now? This is the 12th year. That's a, like, that's a long time to do the it Tonight is. Show and go to 30 Rock every day. What is that like? You know, attending 30 Rock University is probably it's my all time favorite thing because of everything that doesn't happen on the Tonight Show. People don't know that Steve Higgins runs Saturday Night Live. Who so, is the announcer for, right? Yeah, for, yeah right. Oh. Higgins is is Jimmy's sidekick on, on sidekick. the Tonight Show, kind of like, oh, well, DJing was my side hobby while I drum for the roots. Like it was just a means for him to be silly, but like he wow. runs Saturday night live. And so I'm always outside of Higgins door every Monday trying to figure out, okay, so what was the initial pitch like for this sketch? And da, 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 da. <laughs> can I see the diagram of how this idea came to be? And like, I'm that person, the week that Eddie Murphy um, hosted, I, I begged to be a, uh, an intern. I just wanted to hear the pitch. Did you get the job? every Tuesday the host comes in and they sit in a room and the entire cast and the entire writers sit in a circle and they have to pitch. And I'm obsessed with figuring out because a lot of that stuff they do on the show is just based on physical comedy. Take an iconic sketch of theirs like Debbie Downer. So <laughs> it's like, how do you convince the table like you're put on the spot, make us laugh and you're put on the spot and you got to read this idea that you have. And how do you make it work in that room? So they're like, okay, I see that. That's going to be funny. Let's green light it. So I'm, I'm obsessed with that thing. And Did they let you in for Eddie? No, they didn't. So, oh. but I mean, they always let me in. I can watch the show from the audience and mm -hmm. sometimes they'll sit me under the microphone. So it's you can hear that to, laugh? It's hard to suppress my laughter. <laughs> when I go to SNL, I try to suppress and disguise my laugh. So I, I'll laugh from my <laughs> diaphragm. <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> Because the thing is, is that when I was laughing like my old self, Jimmy would start texting me at one in the morning. Like, come on, man, you know, good and well, that bar sketch wasn't funny. Really? You thought that was funny? Literally, like Jimmy be judging me like, yeah, I knew you thought that line was funny. That wasn't funny. When do you get the hostess? Good question, Justin. Well, that's a great question. It um, really is. I would love to see that. Obviously, that would Philadelphia amazing. would turn out. That is actually one of my secret dreams that I'm afraid to 
try to let's manifest it you know what i I mean the the monologue i I can manifest everything (laughs) shut up like i can manifest everything (laughs) except i can't get it out all right so what i do when i explained at the top of the show i do two hours of meditating a day of just seven seconds in five Mm -hmm. seconds exhaling but at nighttime i do a different meditation have you guys seen michael jackson's the road to off the wall the spike lee documentary about yes game off the wall his estate people found his old notebooks and what Michael Jackson used to do, he used to write wish lists and goals. And he really got obsessed uh, during the bad period where he would just start putting post-it notes on the mirror, 100 million, seven singles at number one, da, 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 da. like he would do those things. So the exercise that I do every Sunday is I have to write the 50 goals of my life and what I want to achieve. And the reason why I have to do 50 is because my life coach thinks I'm still bullshitting. And she says that you don't even start getting honest about yourself until like number 37, 38. Wow. So like the first few times she took a list, she's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, Amir, you didn't even form the sentence I wish to until like number 36. Wanting your cousin to graduate USC and making sure that your aunt's house is taken care of. Like that's wishing for other people. Like I want to know what do you want? Oh, I could not. And again, that's one of the hardest things. And so then she would like, she would yank it out of me. She would be like, I mean, how much money you want to make? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll be fine. Uh, You know, I got got my two cars and I got my house and and it was such a struggle for her to pull out of me any hopes or wishes or dreams because I always manage expectations of I don't want good things to happen to me because then it's not happening to them and it's not happening to them and then they'll they'll oh and I my can't God, play, yes I can't play reindeer games mm-hmm. and I can't be friends the sad truth is that in life you're going to elevate to another level and yeah. the people I was hanging with when I was 10 years old my friends you know then I had a new set when I was 20 when I was 30, when I was 40, when I was fit, and it's going to happen. So I couldn't even unlock my brain to even say the words like, this is what I want for me. Cause I thought like, oh, that makes you a bad guy or that makes you narcissistic or that makes you like all villains are billionaires and I don't want money. EMC called me out. She's like, and you drive that bull car. Like that's so performative and so dishonest of you. Like, why do you still have that car? <laughs> and <laughs> what you still got the Scion or the Kia or the? Oh, I have a Scion. I have my very first car. She's like, yeah, I know what you say. That's my first car and that's my first love. And he's like, no, you keep that car as a security blanket. Like, I'll, I'll never let people see what I really drive in Philadelphia. So I keep that rinky dink. Fred Flintstone car where you got to push it with your feet because <laughs> L.A., the L.A. trips are much different. Yeah. OK, yeah. so I have a Maybach and I have a Scion. OK, you, you pulled it. <laughs> it's goals, Amir. It's goals. No, okay. I, I, I have the Maybach because I want to take a nap in the car. And, that, yeah. my... and you're a fool if you drive your own. So, yes, he does. Wait, ever... I was just about to say, wait oh, a no, minute. You're the driver, driver for your Scion? No, for no, the Maybach. I was joking. Oh, oh. You're you're not supposed to like that's like me flying my own private jet. Although, unless you're John Travolta. John Travolta, I was just about to say. Or weird enough, unless you're uh, Twenty One Savage. Really? Yeah. Twenty One Savage just got his license to fly. He, I love that. He wanted to be in the Air Force before he became a rapper. So. Oh. Yeah. So the whole point. Huh. Is um. Do you want to host out or analog? Yeah, I I. <laughs> I would like to 
host it. And it's hard. That's the one, uh, like of all the things I do in life, like that's the one thing that's hard for me to wish for because I think secretly, I think like I can't get on that show. What? Amir, when you get on that show, here's the question they're going to ask you though. Who's your music act? Okay. So this is my dream. My dream is that the roots actually that Tariq and I, because the thing is, is that right before the pandemic started, Tariq was really about to have kind of the moment. Yes. And this is why, okay, this is kind of why I feel guilty about it because Tariq's setup was so great. Like he had the Funkmaster Flex freestyle. He's finally getting his moment in the sun. And Tariq has this amazing play that's basically the anti-Hamilton. Yes. Mm -hmm. And working with the Hamilton people to create it. Like the same producers and whatnot. Right before um, the pandemic, Rachel, like right before. Literally, yeah, Not literally right before. Like they were about to open on Broadway. And oh. if Hamilton was the Obama era feel good play, Black No More would have been the Black Lives Matter Trump <gasps> version of Hamilton. And it was f-ing brilliant. And it's like, once again, if you, if you know there will be blood, you'll get this reference. Like I drink his milkshake. So <laughs> it's like, it's killing me. Is there an update on that, Amir? Yeah, he is actually doing a movie. He's doing a movie right now. I mean, you guys are big movie guys now. Did you ever in your wildest dreams imagine this? Not even. I could not wish this for myself. I'll be honest with you. Again, they gave this thing to me and I tried to get rid of it. I tried to matrix bullet dodge it and I couldn't get rid of it. So I begrudgingly came up to the altar of my destiny. I begrudgingly did it. I mean, I accept it now, but back in 2017, I wasn't trying to hear that. Tariq, on the other hand, is very much ready for his close-up. Excellent actor and even crazier. And a great dresser. Fun fact, Kanye West's first trip to Barney's, Tariq. Really? Tariq was the fast, look. Break it it down, Amir. It was actually Tariq's fashion sense that told me we were going to The Tonight Show. When we first met Jimmy Fallon and he came to our concert, we happened to be in USC doing a spring fling. And I invited Jimmy just so that I could sort of get in his good graces so that I knew we were going to say no. We we appreciate the offer, but we can't do it. However, just to make sure that we have a safe place to go to to promote our record, we wanted to build a rapport with him. So I thought that was going to be the answer. And what wound up happening was I took a 20 minute break to do a quick interview and Richard Nichols and I leave my trailer and the roots and Jimmy Fallon are in a bring it on eight is enough human pyramid. (laughs) They're stacked on top of each other's shoulders, like in a human pyramid, like it's like it's bring it on or whatever. The thing is, Tariq is on the bottom row which means that he's getting his $2,000 Japanese denim jeans dirty. And I looked at Rich and I'm like, yo, I had to figure out what the hell did this guy do to disarm the roots that quickly to the point that they're all doing a human, a a silly human, like they look silly right now. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, and Tariq's getting his jeans dirty. Like he never, Tariq is the person that will throw away a pair of sneakers and buy the next one instantly if there's like a spot nor mm-hmm. like he's like Jesus, neither spot nor wrinkle, like that sort of thing. <laughs> and when I saw that Tariq was getting his clothes dirty to take this photo, that's when I was like, uh, we're not getting rid of this guy no time soon. We're doing late night television, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And Rich was like, I guess so. That's how I knew that was going to happen. This has been a very strange journey and it's still happening 
So that's the thing. It's not even like I'm talking from a perspective of like this wise sage that like this is literally happened to me right now in real time. And I'm just narrating like what's happening yeah. to me. And I can't it's freaky. Yeah. I didn't plan none of this stuff. I didn't plan on living on a farm or being in a, a relationship with freaking Benita Applebum. <laughs> He's like, you need to eat your sushi now. I was just about sashimi. to say, it's just funny. Y'all know he's not making a joke. Just so everybody knows, like literally Grace was Benita Applebaum and she still is. If you see her. Ah. Mm, mm, Thank mm. you so much for Thank being you. so gracious. Tell this story, by the way. So I love it. She's That's why the whisper like, are you telling that story again? Yes. Yes. Because you're hot and you're brilliant. Yes. Thank fine. you, Grace. And thank you for letting us steal him for this amount yes. of time. Yes. One thing before you go, because Rachel would ask this to anybody else, but she knows you got limited time. Yo, what does love and grit mean to you when you think about Philadelphia? I used to be the person that used to always like you ever hear these stories of like these basketball players that like be hanging out at their old projects and hanging around the way. And usually the, the end result is not too desirable. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, like I started becoming that person like the last seven months where I will just randomly drive to Philadelphia. Like, all right, I'll be back in five hours. Like, I'll just drive to Philadelphia and sit on, like, my grandmother's block for, like, an hour and a half. I don't know if I'm chasing ghosts or whatever it is. I don't know why I kind of miss Philadelphia now. It was a thing where it's like, I can't wait to get out. And I'm going to get far away from here. Like, I'd spent my entire life trying to leave West Philadelphia, quote, and making it. Mm. And now it's like I can't like last week I did an extensive trip. I, I went to places. Yo, did you know we had a Cracker Barrel? Like Where? In a city? Nah. That's Northeast. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even know that. Yo, we got a lot of new things in Philly now. Did you see they got a Sprouts? Like they got all kinds of stuff. I Listen. Yeah. yeah. So all last. Did you know we have cheesesteaks that are made of seafood? Amir, <laughs> have you had a cheesesteak? Yes. Yeah, tell tell okay, them about it. So here's Amir. the deal. I would like to think that I had a hand in elevating JL Jupiter's food blog or his they food are. blog is so dope that all the foodies of Philadelphia have just spread out the gospel. You guys got to follow JL Jupiter. Okay. Um, he's a Philadelphia foodie and his specialty, like he's on an Anthony Bourdain level where he's not trying to highlight like the Michelin, the upper echelon, the unaffordable. He's literally like highlighting hood spots that have like near three Michelin star levels of greatness to it. Like and shizzes. School me to shizzes. Shizzes is a spot over there off Ridge and they have all kinds of seafood cheesesteaks. They're making fun of me because I had a crab and shrimp cheesesteak that was like amazing. Okay, I got to get hip to that. Um, <laughs> actually, his latest entry. Okay, for all that health talk I spoke of. Kind of. <laughs> he just. I mean, just, you can't talk about Philly without good food. But for me, though, like going to his blog is kind of like the strip club. You know, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not going to partake in it. But damn, if I'm going to look at look at it. So, but yes, are are you talking about the Muslim fish hoagie from Sister Muhammad's? So that's another level too. Now that yes, yeah. you know Sister Muhammad. Yeah. So Sister Muhammad has a Muslim. Muslim fish hoagie, which is off the chain. Yes, yes. But there are a few other salmon, fish, and crab hoagie spots. Like Philly, so it tastes so good, don't it? Don't it? It just tastes amazing. It's super amazing. Okay, so you know what's really dope about these two conversations is they all 
kind of go back to being about hip-hop at the end of the day. You know, Roberto Lugo is definitely a child of hip-hop and in the community. And of course, yes, uh, the roots. So yes, we are in the 50th year and we're doing it pretty big here in Love and Grit because we had this conversation with Jazzy Jeff as well. And um, he got deep. Especially about that 50th performance at the Grammys this year. That was a really, really big deal. And about his family, another must listen. Another one of our guests coming up May 21st is having a really cool pop-up. Chef Kurt Evans. Wait till you hear the name of it. The Last Dragon. I love this. And he's combining his black food with Chinese food. And he's going to open it as a restaurant, but it's a pop-up May 21st. Oh, no. Shout out to everybody who's seen The Last Dragon. That's my stuff. So I can't wait. Black and Asian. That's the first. I freaking love Philadelphia. And it's Chef Kurt Evans ever. is the best. He is a Philadelphia champion. So yes. go check it out. May 21st, The Last Dragon. The Last Dragon. That is so cool. And we'll oh, talk man. to you soon. Yeah. 